Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Before I read our text, um, I had this both this awkward and awesome thing happen to me uh, this week. Our daughter Rose started at a new school and a few weeks ago, and they had like a little uh, party for parents um, on the um, Thursday evening. It was a, it ended up being a great time, but I got off this, uh, I got off the elevator in this like really bougie spot in Tribeca, and this wave of nerves hit me, and I was like, will I know anyone here? Will I be welcomed? Will I fit in? Will I be the youngest parent here? Yes to that one, um, and I realized I had a bit of like uneasiness in me or worry coming into uh, a new environment. And so we like checked our coats and like just went and kind of hid in this high top table in the corner. And you know, Katie and I were just comfortable talking to each other. And it was fine, but then um, a couple came and just set their drinks on our table and started talking to us. And I was really, really grateful. I didn't realize it at the time. I was like, who are you? I don't feel like talking right now. Um, but then I realized um, uh, we were waiting for someone to welcome us. And it was really good um, for me. Our children ended up being in the same class, and we talked for over an hour. And so it was really kind and warm of them for us to, um, to be included. Why do I tell you this? Um, coming into a new space, I know I've seen a lot of new faces around here. Um, I was reminded on Thursday what it's like to be in a new environment, um, to not know anybody, um, to feel awkward or uneasy. And so um, if you're new or newer around here, I just want to say um, I think it's courageous. I think it's really courageous to come into a new environment, particularly um, one where you're seeking God. And I just want to honor that in you, and I'm grateful uh, that you're here. And I also want to say um, welcome. Um, I think that's just awesome. My encouragement is always, um, if you're looking for a, a church to call home, six weeks is really what it takes. you got to go to the same place six times um, to really get to know people. And then we, tr- we try to model things around here like that. So every six weeks, we're going to try to have you know, uh, some gathering for uh, newcomers in some way. Um, and an opportunity um, to connect with people around here. And then I th- my encouragement to you, if you've been around here, maybe it's a challenge to you, if you've been around here, is to really embrace that value of hospitality that we have, that we would be um, open with our circles of relationship and that we would leave the comfortability and go and try and meet somebody um, new, which I learned on Thursday can be a little bit awkward, but in the end, it's a good thing. So um, I'm going to push into that a little bit. All right, I want to read our teaching text. Um, I want to pray, and uh, here we are in Mark chapter 12. So today's teaching text is from Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him, him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And so, Father, we long to hear your still, small voice. And I love that you are, are the God who came and told stories. Um, almost seems like um, you veiled yourself in a way, but I can see as I read this passage the ways that you want to be known and sought after. So I, I pray today that our curiosity is piqued. Um, I pray that your grace may abound in this community, that you would be seen in, in your truest form. Um, I pray right now, God, that you would give us faith. Uh, to turn towards you. If we hear something today and it's from you, may we not reject it, but may we receive it rightly. And I pray now for the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart that that they be pleasing in your sight. My Lord and my God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so it's Oscar season, and that means at my house, um, we'll try to make our way through all of the uh, best pictures. Um, My vote is everything, everywhere, all at once. Anybody? Okay, I got a little like... I got this right here. I love that. Um, and I'm, I've been thinking about, like, all the ones I want to watch and, like, how we'll figure out how to, like, watch them, like, every night when the kids go to bed. And it got me thinking this week about how story is a sort of uh, universal language. It's a language that we all speak. And I find it interesting that this, this is what Jesus is actually doing in this passage is he's telling us a story. And so the verse 1 begins, and he began to speak to them in parables. A parable is a simple story with a profound truth. Simple story, profound truth. And the word actually um, in the original language here is, is two words combined. It's para, um, think um, someone that comes alongside, like a paraeducator, um, someone that comes alongside a student in a classroom. And then the other word there is ballo, and it means like ball or like to throw. And so um, parable actually means to throw alongside. To throw alongside. And this is what Jesus does with parables. Is he takes everyday occurrences um, in this sort of agrarian society. And he throws them alongside principles of the kingdom of God. And so he would say things like, do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Look at this seed. Look at this tree. Do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Do you want to know how you should uh, not worry? Look at the birds of the air. There was a strong man in this house. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Have you ever seen a poor woman desperately looking for a lost coin? Have you ever seen a shepherd looking for a lost sheep? They're everyday occurrences that actually end up creating profound truth. And so one scholar said it like this. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life. Listen to this. Arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt to its precise application to tease the mind into active thought. And I love this. Leaving the mind in sufficient doubt to its precise application so that we what? So that we think, right? And so in one sense today, um, if you preach the parable, you want to embody its form, um, maybe, you ha- maybe you leave here and you say, I got to go think about, you know, what was said today. And maybe that would actually be the, the best way um, to think about it. Uh, the way that Jesus tells a parable may be simple, but that doesn't make it simplistic in its nature, right? We leave here and we're thinking. Uh, I was thinking of a parable like a, um, like a capsuled pill. Everyone is getting sick right now, and so it like, made sense to me. Um, what does a pill do? Like a, a capsuled pill, it's like encased in that gelatin and the medicine is inside, right? And you take it and it keeps the bitterness of the medicine away from your taste buds. 
right? It slides down your throat, into your esophagus, into your stomach, where that gelatin will then melt away and release the medicine. And I feel like a parable is similar in the sense that it, it, it keeps its, the message at a distance, right? It's a story. You're just like, I'm just listening to a story. I can, I can ingest this. I can take it in. And instead of going into your stomach, it goes into your heart. It takes wisdom and ideas and begins to sort of um, sneak into your heart and unlatches and deposits this wisdom into your life. And you may say, well, what then does a parable require of us? I think it requires patience, right? It requires um, uh, reflection, but I actually think what it requires is faith. It actually requires faith. God, would you, would you actually show me who you are through a story like this? Could you teach me about your nature and your character? So that's going to be my hope as we walk through this um, parable today. I will explain some parts of it, but I'm not going to explain all parts of it because I, I think the, leaving the mind in sufficient doubt may be helpful. So we'll look at the parts of the parable, and then what, what we'll end up talking about today is uh, ways of rejecting Jesus, which is what we find here. Now, when you read something like this, um, you're like, who is the audience, right? You and I are like, um, I'm the audience, right? Kind of. The Bible um, may be for us, but that doesn't necessarily make every passage about us. And so I think the important thing here is to ask as we begin is like, who is the, who's the original audience of this parable? What does verse 1 say? Verse 1 says, he began to speak to them in parables. Our, our, our interest should say, who is them, right? And then in verse 12, it says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared for the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Who is them, right? Rewind the chapter before. Verse 18 says this. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So chief priests scribes and what's beginning to surface jealousy and fear over this person jesus then the other one and they came again to jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you the authority to do them so it looks as though the parable is actually to them meaning he's talking directly to the religious leaders of this time so here's where we're at in Mark's gospel. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Um, there's an air of murder in the air, right? Like this is the end of his life. He's coming with his claims. He's teaching with authority. Brandon talked last week about how he came into the temple um, exerting power, flipping tables, reorienting how people thought about wealth in the temple. Um, and what do they do? They question his authority. And so in turn, it's almost as if, you know, there's crowds of people imagined around Jesus, but he like sections off a group. He's like, I'm actually telling this parable to you. And so actually, this parable is a parable of conflict. He's speaking specifically to rulers of the Jews at the time, chief priests and scribes. They thought this was the time we are going to question Jesus' authority. And here's why. Jesus is a threat to their power. Jesus is a threat to their influence, to their status. In that time, they would have been the uh, religious elite. They would have been the ones with the right credentials, the right background, um, the right degrees. Their resumes are polished. Like, they're ready to submit the right things. And here comes this no-name preacher from Galilee, and he is, um, he's an adversary to them. And so Jesus begins to speak to them in peril, parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press. And built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of them 
uh, fruit of the vineyard. And so I want to I leave this up here for a second. We're going to kind of look at this part, part and part here. Um, this is an agrarian culture, right? So vineyards, not like something we understand. In fact, I was, I was laughing a little bit this week. I was thinking about like the culture in which Jesus is describing. And I was like, actually, we live in the exact opposite culture as like a rural agrarian culture, like, you know, happy winter in urban capital of the world, right? So it's like completely opposite. But historians actually tell us that um, land in this time, um, being an absentee landowner is like a very normal thing. And so in Judea and in Galilee, uh, a lot of the land was actually owned by foreigners. And these absentee landowners, or the vineyard in this case, um, would actually lease out their land to tenants who would work the land, and then they would come and, and get the crop as they saw fit. I also was reading this this week, and I thought, that is the dream job. I figured out the dream job. Own a vineyard in Cape Town and just go get the wine whenever you want it. That's like the perfect job of all time. And so what happens is, is um, I, I think this is the, the triggering part, right? The, the religious leaders are starting to get it. Already they're starting to understand, okay, Jesus, I get your metaphor. I, I get what you're saying about um, this, this vineyard, but it's a little bit hidden to us. We, we have to dig a little deeper to really understand it. So here's what I want to show you here, um, just to, for the sake of clarity and, and uh, descriptions here. He began to speak to them in parables, and so I, I labeled this for us. A man, that would be the landowner, that would be God, uh, planted a vineyard, Israel. Uh, the story of the Old Testament, I'm going to like severely oversimplify this, and I don't think this is a good thing to do at all, all the time. But the story of the Old Testament is um, God has chosen people, Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the, the repetition over and over and over again. And what does Israel do? Israel comes back to God. Israel wanders away from God. Israel comes back to God. Israel wanders away from God. And so they're described as a vineyard. Um, we'll look at this in just a second. And then the other characters here, he sent servants. Um, that would be the prophets of the Old Testament that they sent. And then uh, the tenants here are the religious leaders that, that Jesus is confronting. And then in the end, the son is Jesus. It's like very obvious on that one. But the reason I, I, I point this out to you is that the, the religious leaders are understanding um, both the uh, background, they're understanding the agrarian part of, of the metaphor, but they're also beginning to understand the Jewish background of what he's saying. You and I can't see it though. The vineyard is this, this word um, in the Old Testament no, even not in the Old Testament, in the, the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, on the, on the doors of the temple, burned down in AD 70, but um, the temple doors would have had a vineyard over it. And it was, a, it was a very clear metaphor for God's chosen people, Israel. And then in Isaiah chapter 5, this is like the most amazing passage, Isaiah chapter 5, it's a love song, or it looks like a love song. And here's what it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Isn't that beautiful? If you're, if you're single, Valentine's Day is next week. That's like hinge profile, like, no? Siona, no? That would be, I think it would work really nice. I sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Almost the same passage as Jesus is describing. But then look what happens next. It's a love song. It's very beautiful. Um, God cares for his people, Israel. He loves them. He's watching over them. The vineyard, he's tending to it. There's care. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. He's saying, I love my people, Israel, but they bear only bad fruit. It's like this, um, 
It's like a love song. I, was, uh, I did a lot of Googling on this this week. It's like a love song that turns on you. Um, there's some great ones out there. Uh, Whitney Houston, um, I will not sing. I promise I won't sing. But I, and I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. It's like, you're like, man, that's a perfect love song. It's not. Listen. <laughs> I would only be in your way, so I'll go now. And I know I'll think of you every step of the way. And I will always love you. It's, it's beautiful, but it's like, they're, no, it's like severing. It's bad, right? What about this one? Um, I swore, I swore I would be true, and honey, so did you. So why were you holding her hand? Is that the way you stand? Were you lying to me all the time? You know I'm such a fool for you. you get, yeah, linger, right? Why'd you have to let it linger, right? Same idea. I promise I'm not trying to sing to show off. I have no skills whatsoever. <laughs> this, is, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Israel's my chosen people. I love them. I've tended to them like a vineyard in the garden. But they yielded only bad fruit. It's like the worst love song of all time, right? And he's saying, I'm going to tell you this parable about a landowner who loved them, cared for them, tended to them, and the group's fruit was only rotten. And so what happens? Harvest time comes. The landowner sends a messenger. A messenger is the prophet. A servant to get some fruit. But the tenant farmers who are watching over the field, they beat him and send the messenger back away empty-handed. It's their way of saying, not a chance. You're not getting any fruit from here. And so the landowner sends another messenger. And what do we find? beats him even more severely. The text actually says he beats his head in. Then another, but that servant doesn't actually come back. They kill that one. And another, and another, and another. They either don't come back or they're beaten badly. And the messengers are these prophets of the Old Testament. God keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, turn back to God in his ways. Come back, come back, come back. And the only thing that the landowner has gotten in return for his treasured vineyard is rejection, abuse and death and so he's like i got one more idea i got one more idea and so perfect that jesus is the one saying this he's he's explaining um his part of the story and it's building in anticipation verse six says this he had still one other a beloved a beloved son and it just sort of hits you you're like that was the plan right there was rejection after rejection after rejection and abuse and death, but then the son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out the vineyard. We know this story, right? We know this one. This is, this is Jesus' story. This is somehow our story that we um, come and we gather under this banner called good news that you know god sent his son jesus the perfect sinless suffering servant to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that that we deserve and jesus is this is like a gospel moment right in the middle of mark where, where jesus is actually like pretty pretty much saying plainly like this is who i am this is what i've come to do um, paul writes in second corinthians chapter five he says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preview to you and to, to everyone around that this is what I came to do. And, and for you and I today, this, the, this acknowledgement of this text is both historic in the sense that it happened in time and history, but it's also the ongoing process of change and renewal for us in our own lives. 
right? And, and, and I want you to hear that in two ways today. I want you to hear that like personally, like that change and renewal is possible in your own life in the here and the now, but also broader, like think, think bigger, think outside of, of us for today to think that this story of, of redemption and restoration that God has promised is actually for our world. And so when you turn on the news and it's like so bad and so depressing, you can say that actually there's, there's hope, right? On a personal level, you can say, yes, I'm going to miss the mark. I'm going to fall short. But because of this story, I actually don't have to live into the shame of that story. When I do wrong, there's actually um, forgiveness and care um, and grace for me because the, 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 the landowner sent the son, right? And, and the son was disrespected on my behalf, right? And then it's cosmic, right? Like that, that thing that, that Jesus previews is so much bigger and better that, that one day heaven is going to come to earth and, and all things are going to be made new and there's going to be no more weeping or crying or pain because there was the rejection of the son. And so I think there's two ways to really think about um, the, the way Jesus is rejected here. And I, I think there's one more correct way to think about it, but I also think there's another more personal way to think about it. And so here's a punchline of, of the, the parable in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? And it's almost like Jesus, I, I almost imagine that he paused there and just like stood there and just stared at them. Like, what do you think? What do you think the, the owner of the vineyard is going to do? And then get this, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, we know through history that um, th there was an understanding of capital punishment, both on the Jewish side of things and the Roman side of things. So destroying the tenants makes sense. This is the part that doesn't make sense to the Jewish mind, and, uh, to, the, to these leaders. Give the vineyard to others. Are you joking? Give the vineyard to others? No. Like, this was the plan. These are God's chosen people. This is Israel. Like, I can get you killing us, giving, our, giving away God's plan? No way. And then what does Jesus say? He enters himself into the story again. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying, I'm the foundation. I'm the thing that you're, you're rejecting right now, but I'm actually the thing that your whole life and mindset has been built on from the very beginning of time. I'm the thing you've been waiting for. And he says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What will God do? He's going to take it and give it to others. What does that mean, right? This is, this is the unfolding of the story of God. He, he's saying, I'm going to bring the story of, of redemption to those from a Jewish background with belief in the Messiah and those from a Gentile background with belief in the Messiah. But the Messiah is the thing that hinges. That, that's, that's the thing. One more thing, and I'll get to some application here. In 1 Peter chapter 2, this same verse is quoted. Um, Peter is writing to... Um, um, like a very um, diverse group of people. And he says this, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Same verse. And then what does he say? And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Another translation says like that it's a, a rock of offense. And I think that's really, a really helpful way to think about this. Jesus is a person um, from society's perspective that um, I would say 90% of the way there, like, good guy, awesome, I'm, a, I'm affirming, like, Jesus is the thumbs up, right? I'm sure even, like, if you had a friend and you told them you were a follower of Jesus, they would say, awesome, you know, and kind of move on. I, I would say most people can get 90% of the way there, but then we get a little bit offended, right? 
we stumble, the rock of offense, the stumbling stone, right? And I think that it, w- one, one way of reflection here today could be this, that w- in what way in your life is there a sentiment um, where Jesus is a stumbling block in your life? And, you know, maybe for some of you in the room, you'd say, well, not outright, obviously, right? Like, Jesus is not a stumbling block to me, but I think that there are, um, I like that idea of a stumbling block, right? You can step over it, but, like, sometimes it trips you up. And so maybe there's, like, an intellectual barrier, right, of questions around the resurrection, biblical authority. Um, uh, the big question that a lot of people have is how could a loving God send people to hell? Um, suffering in our world. Um, should we take the Bible literally, right? These are serious questions that people have, and that's, uh, that's honest, and I think that we should search those things out. And, but, but to acknowledge that that's, a, that's an intellectual stumbling block for me. Or maybe the stumbling block is more like an ethical one where you'd say, like, you know, like, why, why does God care who I sleep with? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't come to church to feel judged, right? My Jesus would never judge me, right? But then there's parts where you'd say, you know what? I just think that Jesus is a stumbling block in that way. Or doesn't, doesn't like religion cause more violence, like from like a historical perspective? That's actually the ethical part, right? Or maybe the, the stumbling block is practical. Like you'd say, how do I integrate um, my life with God into aspects of my work, into aspects of my family, into aspects of my friendship? And it just seems like, I'll just keep those two things separate because it just seems easier. And what you realize is actually Jesus is a stumbling block in that way. Or maybe it's the idea of church. You're like a, a formal commitment gathering. That just seems like, that seems like a lot. Like I'd do this thing at home with, with God. Even as a pastor, I, I, um, I, I realized that for me it's like seasons. Seasons where I doubt or I wrestle or um, some aspect of life sort of comes into my way and I think, I, this is hard, right? Or seasons where I would say, you know, like, um, I have faith, I'm praying, I feel close to God, and, like, things seem to, like, be making sense. And then other seasons where it's like, where's my desire to pray? Like, I don't even know if I, I don't even, I don't feel like I want to do that. You know, I'm, I'm busy, God, sorry. <laughs> and what I actually realized is those are little ways of stumbling over, it's, it's me questioning, is, is what Jesus says really right and better and true for my life? Because in the end, I'm profoundly selfish, right? And I, I think maybe that's the, this is part of the application is that I think in small ways, let's speak for myself, in small ways, every day I reject Jesus. In small ways, I, every day I reject Jesus. I, now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not Lord and Savior of my life, trying to be like, I, I want Jesus to be the foundation, but when I wake up and I don't think about anybody by myself, it's a, it's a small way of rejecting Jesus, right? I love what Christian Wyman says. He says, Faith steals upon you like dew. Some days you wake and it's there, and like dew, it gets burned off in the rising sun of anxieties, ambitions, and distractions. And I just think those are those little moments for us, maybe a little reminder um, for us. How are you waking up in the morning? What's the first thing that captures your attention and, and helps you think? Because in small ways every day I do that. Um, and that's one way of reading the passage. And I love that Peter goes on. I, I, I don't want to leave this out um, because I think this is really important. Peter, Peter's not done in that passage saying Jesus is a stumbling block and offense. He's actually reminding them, and he, this is what he's saying. He's saying, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Don't forget who you are. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's one way of looking at the passage, right? Um, 
rejecting Jesus in small ways, and, and I'll just say it like this, um, just for framing, out of like a, a moral relativism, right? Out of like, oh, just like everything's, it's fine, you know? That's true, and I think by and large, we can wrap our head around that application. That's not what this passage is about. Uh, and, and I know that sounds crazy to say, that's, I, I, I studied, I'm like, there, that's where I'm going to end my sermon. That's not what this passage is about, actually. And, and it, it's interesting because the other side of it is harder to spot. The other part of it is harder to spot. The point of this passage is an expose and a critique of a specific group of people, religious leaders. Remember the audience, they and them, right? Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus is a threat to their power. Jesus is, um, in one sense, killed because um, he talked against a group of religious leaders who were jealous over him, who um, had an air of moral superiority and self-righteousness that wouldn't allow them to see Jesus for who he was. And the strongest, strongest, strongest critique that Jesus had for people in his time were for morally upright people who thought they had it together that they they were sure that they knew God they were following him they were right and what they did is they built rule upon rule upon rule and regulation upon regulation and Jesus is right in front of him and they can't even see it right and so I think this is a more appropriate application is that yes you can reject Jesus out of moral relativism every day there are moments and maybe that tinges us a little bit but even more than that is rejecting Jesus out of moralism says God look at me Look how awesome I am. Don't you love me? Look how I'm serving you. I go to the Father's heart. I'm going with Siona like six times this week, right? That's how, that's how it is. I'm crushing it, right? Do you see me? I'm reading nine Christian books right now, and I'm so loved by, don't you love me? And, and in one sense, we can blame like fifth grade teachers for like grading us, right? Or just like feeling affirmation for the things that we do right in this world. But this is actually what Jesus is critiquing in this passage. I love what uh, Richard Loveless writes. He writes this in his book called Dynamics for Spiritual Renewal, Renewal, and this is just so good. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. That's, that's, that's the, the religious leaders here. They're radically insecure. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. May help us understand racism, right? I mean, I think that, that some, the, the, when I look at this, pat, um, at this quote and I look at what Jesus is trying to do, I think we need to aim it in the right way. The default mode of each one of us is self-sufficiency. It's control, it's fix yourself, it's pick yourself up by your bootstraps, it's knock it off. We leave church and we, 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 we hear subconscious messages. I need to be careful that the first thing I wake up and do is not reject Jesus, right? So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read my Bible. Th those are good practices, right? And what Jesus is very interested in this passage and in your life, I believe, is for you to get the right motivation and foundation for doing the right thing, Right? Because the natural default is I obey and then I'm accepted. I obey and then I'm accepted. Because otherwise, what do we do? We say, I'm only as good as my latest spiritual high. 
right? I, I'm only as good um, as, as, as my last prayer. Things are going to go right for me if I pray enough. Nothing is going to go wrong in my life if I serve enough, right? And this passage is perfect because it says, no, 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 no. You are saved by sheer grace. I, this is why I came. This is what I came to do. It's by grace. It's by grace. It's by grace. Look what I'm about to do. The focus is like, stop thinking about yourself. Stop focusing on what you're doing and look at, I'm right in front of you. And so here's, here's, here's why I think this is so important and, and why it was, a, it was sort of a reset for me as a pastor this week um, of, of our church. And here, here's, I think this is a really important challenge. Um, it's, it's, it's from Twitter. So I was like, <laughs> fine. I was like, I could steal all this woman's ideas. Um, and that would be a form of moralism, right? I was like, look at what I can do. This woman is so smart. This is Diane Langberg. She's a, um, a, I think she's a psychologist and a Christian therapist. And, and just hear this, and I, and I wanted to talk about this really quick, and I'll wrap up. I fear that a portion of Christendom today has become less interested in truth and more interested in power. We've acquired fame and money and status and reputation and little kingdoms. At the same time, we're steeped in pornography. Marriages are falling in large numbers, are failing in large numbers, and we define leaders and organizations and pulpits to feed off those in their fall. The building of the kingdom of God will not be accomplished by notoriety, brilliance or the giftedness of its builder but rather because of the fidelity to God and his ways this passage serves as a critique for Christian leaders who abuse who minimize and use other people and and I'm I'm not saying none of us are immune to that um, um, of wrongdoings or abuse of power in that way but I felt like this is a really good reminder for the heartbeat of who we want to be as a church and I took it personally this week the kind of culture and care we want to build as a church that's founded on Jesus, shaped by Jesus, led by Jesus, and like that Jesus would be the cornerstone. Hear me, hear me well. I am a sinner, and I'm trying to tell you, I'm, I, I want to try and take us in that direction. We're going to fall short, I know, but like let's call this out right now, right? That we want to be that type of church that uh, leads with integrity, that, that could come up here and say, you know what, actually I was wrong. I was wrong in that way, and, and, and I repent, and I want to go in a new, new direction. Um, there's nothing big to talk about, by the way. Um, it felt like there's an announcement, you know. Um, but I felt like it was a good warning, right? A, a good signpost to say, what's the motivation? What's the heartbeat? And do you remember as a, as a church that we're guided by Jesus and we're saved by um, she, sheer grace? No, I think we could equal that out with we fall short. We're weak, we, we sin, we, we don't have it all figured out, but in Jesus' kindness and love and care for us, um, we are made right. And so uh, the band can come up. Um, we do this from time to time, and I think it's a practice that um, is really good for us, but I want to lead us in a time of corporate confession um, as a way of, of, of saying uh, we know who we are, God, um, both uh, in our sinfulness, but we also know who we are in terms of your grace. And so uh, the prayer of confession is going to come up. I'm going to let you uh, just read it for a second. Um, and if you want to say it with me, I'll lead us through this. And then after that, it'll give us an assurance of pardon. And then um, I'll pray. All right, if you'd like to say this with me, prayer of confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. 
we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your holy name. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Let him hear this assurance of pardon spoken over you. Hear the good news. Christ died and rose again for us. He reigns in power and prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and a new life has begun. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Let's pray. So, Father, I love you. Um, I thank you for this parable. I pray we take it personally. I, I pray that we would think about this this week. Small ways we reject you, ways we um, rely on our own um, ways of being, our own control, the ways in which we've actually um, are trying to do things in our own strength and we're so afraid of becoming weak. But God, you are strong and we are weak. And so I pray right now as we come to the communion table, may the bread and the cup be a reminder of what we bring to the table and what you bring to the table, God. May we be reminded that we are in desperate need of something from the outside to sustain and to nourish us. And by your grace, what we find is that you are a God that provides. You live the life that we should have lived and you died the death that we deserve. May we come to the table reminded of that, tasting your grace, for you are good. In your son's name we pray, amen.